From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with political science professor Corey Brettschneider about his latest book, The Oath of Office, a guide to the Constitution for future presidents. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. What do you need to know about the Constitution if you're going to be president of the United States? That is the fundamental question Corey Brettschneider raises in his latest text, The Oath of Office, a guide to the Constitution for future presidents. Now, if we simply base the book on Brettschneider's title, it's quite possible that you will have no reason to examine the text. In spite of the great school axiom that contends anyone can grow up to be president, it is highly unlikely that anyone listening to the broadcast will occupy the Oval Office. But everyone will be eligible to vote for president. And it is Brett Schneider's contention that if we the people are ignorant of the Constitution and its fundamental precepts, we will be unable to hold those who seek the office accountable. Brett Schneider is professor of political science and public policy at Brown University, where he teaches courses in political theory and public law. He received his Ph.D. in politics from Princeton University and his Juris Doctorate in law from Stanford University. Professor Corey Brett Schneider, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. I'm a pleasure to be here and to talk to you again. I enjoyed the last one. Well, if we base the text on the title... It would, it would seem the only persons that need to read your book would be President Donald Trump and the legion of Democrats who have thrown their hat into the 2020 presidential sweepstakes. How would you respond to that? Uh, yeah, he's unlikely to uh, read it, I think. Uh, we have an audio book, so maybe he could listen to some of it, but given his attention span, that's, that's also unlikely. The book is, has as a device the idea of advice to future presidents and what you need to know if you want to be president of the United States. And of course, it's also about what this president doesn't know and really should know. But the point of it is, uh, you know, very few, some of us maybe think we could be president. And these days, frankly, it's a low bar. So, you know, some people will throw their hats in the ring. But the device is meant to really speak to voters. Mm -hmm. And my idea is that the 2020 presidential election really needs to become a referendum on the Constitution because of the assault that it's currently under. And so using this frame of future presidents as a way of saying, you know, certainly speaking directly to somebody who wants to do this, um, speaking to the candidates who are running, speaking to uh, the president who's failed to live up to what he should have known about the office. But it's as fundamentally talking to the rest of us, because in the end, courts are not going to save us. And I talk in the book about limits on the presidency that are placed by courts. They're increasingly anemic and I think should be stronger. And in the absence of them, it's really up to citizens to figure out uh, how to evaluate a president, how to stop one uh, through elections. And then I also, uh, the last third of the book is really about um, the first two thirds are, you know, what do you need to know to be president in terms of not just the sort of basics of the Constitution, but the limits on the powers, the way that the war power, for instance, isn't 
up to you to decide whether or not to launch an attack. It's Congress that initiates the Bill of Rights and the obligation of our president to go beyond not violating it, but to promote the idea of uh, free speech, of religious freedom. And then the last third, after, after the sections on powers uh, and, uh, and rights, is about how, what do you do when a president just doesn't listen, when, the, when we failed in the election to elect a president who's going to do these things. Uh, and, and that outlines, in addition to voting, the role of the states in stopping presidents gone wrong, um, the role of uh, indictment for crimes of presidents, and I make the case for uh, return to a system of an independent prosecutor, which would make it much easier, easier to prosecute criminal presidents. And then finally, of course, it ends with impeachment, which is a, a hot topic of the day as well. And we're going to, well, I'm going to ask, I'm going to have some impeachment questions for you later, but what is your primary takeaway that all of us need to know if there's any one thing or any two things uh, from Article 2 of the Constitution? Uh, in that section, um, I mean, the, the first place to begin is the idea of the limits. You know, I think a lot of people don't realize that when the president takes that oath of office, we hear these words every, every four years, but Article 2 gives the text of the president's oath to pr and, com and commits the president to saying, to pledging, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. So that isn't just a by-the-way part of the presidency. It's the fundamental design is to require the president to cite these words in order to see that there is a limit to what a president can, can do. And so that, I think, symbol of the oath opens up uh, the more specific limits. I mentioned the war power. Uh, presidents uh, in, in the rise of the imperial presidency in the, in the 20th century have really ignored the requirement that it's, pre that it's Congress that initiates war. They've gone often too far, uh, including uh, as much as I'm a fan of uh, the former President Obama in Libya. He didn't seek a resolution from Congress as he should have. Uh, the role of the bully pulpit, that when a president speaks, the courts aren't going to tell him uh, he, him or her what to say, but a president has to defend the Constitution, and that includes, for instance, the Equal Protection Clause. So when President Trump talked about in Charlottesville the idea that there were good people on both sides, Nazis and anti-Nazis, I can't think of a more flagrant violation of that use of the bully pulpit to uh, defend the Constitution. There's also stuff that's very immediately relevant about uh, hiring and firing uh, and the uh, uh, obligation um, of a president to uh, respect that the Congress has placed limits on that ability not to try to uh, undo the administrative state and the role of civil servants in protecting, um, in protecting uh, uh, the central ideals, uh, legal ideals that have been enshrined in Congress the requirement to not attack the person who's investigating you because the oath requires respect for the rule of law. And then finally, I should say, I mean, in a, in a way, I guess I did see it coming, frankly, and you can tell it from the book. There's a chapter about emergencies and about the role of Congress in making law and the president executing it and why basically emergencies aren't, there is no inherent emergency power of the president. And a president, as in this emergency, has to respect the role of Congress in allocating funds and in making law, and not using either fake, or, uh, using the idea of emergency, fake or otherwise, to usurp that role. Well, one of the things you, you mentioned early in the book um, was the founders' fear that uh, was articulated, especially by Madison in Federalist Fifty One, which which you talk about in terms of the the the, the term coined by De Tocqueville, the tyranny of the majority. Uh, is that 
How is that concern, the tyranny of the majority, reflected, if it is, in Article 2? Uh, I think the very idea of saying, you know, I think that when you contrast my vision of the presidency and Madison's uh, with Trump's, it becomes extremely clear. I think for Trump, you know, he hasn't read the Constitution. He doesn't care about it. He said many things that indicate that. Um, But the thing that's most disturbing is his belief that because he was elected by the American people, he can basically do whatever he wants. And what that fails to realize is that uh, a president with that attitude risks becoming a, what the framers called a demagogue, uh, using the power of their election to uh, cater to the worst impulses of people to do whatever they want without restraint. And that's not the idea of American democracy. The idea is that the people elect a president to pursue constitutional and democratic purposes. Uh, I think Lincoln put it best when he said that the presidency, uh, you know, is uh, uh, sorry, when, when he said democracy is by the people, in other words, we elect a president in a procedure in an election, and of course that everyone recognizes, but it's also for the people. The office has to be used for the interest of people, and that means also respecting their rights. And that couldn't be further from what this president thinks of the office. So uh, the contrast between Madison and, and Trump, really, is the contrast between uh, the ideal that the framers set up and what and the thing that they were also trying to protect against the demagogue and and that's trump unfortunately mm. now, the, now now the fear um mob rule tyranny of the majority that that, that the that the founders had initially uh did that have less to do with philosophical underpinnings or were they just concerned about not replicating things such as shay's rebellion and that was their main concern I'm Shays Rebellion. Uh, you know that there, are, there, there. If you read the kind of day by day, it certainly comes up the possibility that, of stability and anarchy, and they are worried about that, and they want to set up a system in which it's not going to be a free for all where people can, you know, are going to continually violently revolt. But I think that when it comes to the design, they're talking about more than that. They see that in addition to to violence, that the thing to fear is. Uh, leaders who uh, appeal to the worst instincts of people and use that sort of pretend idea of democracy to try to prop themselves up. And I think that, to them, was the even bigger fear, and that's why the design is meant to limit uh, presidents from abusing their power. And then, and then another piece, uh, to just stay with Madison for just one, for another moment. You know, Madison, I think, also in 51, definitely in 10, I, I get them confused sometimes, but 10 and 51, Madison talks about factions, which mm-hmm. we which we now are, are parties, so are, 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 um, are, are political interests, special interests. But, mm-hmm. but, again, were those writings about, the founders' philosophical thinking, or the fact that they were just a third, and it was just more of the others than it was of them, and this is reflective of some political self-interest on their part. Uh, you know, uh, to me, the way it works is they're doing both. That they want to be realistic. That you know, they continually say things like that. That men are not angels, right? And you can't assume that they'll always be the best. You ha- but you have to give that possibility that people are going to live up to their ideals but also design the system so that if you get a Trump, which they did worry about, especially in the presidency and in the first opening days, the first thing they talk about is the, uh, the office of the president and the possibility that it could be abused in a, in a way that resembles monarchy. So they have their ideal of how a president should behave. That's the oath and taking it seriously, respecting uh, the rights of the people, making legislation for their interests. 
but then they also have to create a design that realizes that sometimes realistically, as you say, they fall into factions that are entirely based on self-interest and to protect against it. But it's certainly a mistake, and unfortunately, I think there's some political science interpretations of what they were up to that read it all about selfishness or self-interest. And when you just read any of their writings or read the notes from the convention, Madison's notes, it's clear that they didn't think that. They were, they were both uh, designing a system and, in that sense, political scientists, but also they were philosophers. They were thinking about virtue, about the common good, and about deliberation. Uh, how do you assess, we're going to switch it just around, sure. from the legislative, from the le- action from the legislative to the executive, how do you assess the Senate's behavior? I'm speaking specifically of uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and his unwillingness to hold hearings for Supreme Court nom- uh, nominee by President Obama, Merrick Garland. Was that just bare-knuckle politics? Were there larger concerns that you address in your text and why? I mean, you know, the president takes an oath, but it's also all branches take an oath. The idea of the Constitution is it's supposed to reign supreme over all branches and that the role when you're occupying those roles is to is to enforce it. And it's very clear uh, from the Constitution that uh, the, the president nominates a, a justice and the Senate has to confirm, but has to consider. And so to refuse to even hold hearings, uh, Leader McConnell was really, uh, I, I can't say it in strong enough terms, just undermining his, his oath, the thing that he's supposed to do, that's his job. And uh, it was a terrible dereliction of duty, a, a kind of de- degradation of the Senate. And um, you know, it, it's not the. There are certain things, as I said in the beginning, that the court is going to be willing to uh, protect. If if this president, for instance, he keeps threatening to shut down Saturday Night Live, if he tried that, I have no doubt that the Supreme Court, even this conservative Supreme Court, would stop him. Uh, but the the part problem with Leader McConnell's move is that that the court would regard as a political question. They're not going to intervene in that specific issue. So uh, we really are back to, to the people and to uh, our need to recognize that really regardless of party, this was uh, beyond the bounds to refuse to, to, refuse to uh, even consider a nominee and to do one's basic constitutional duty. The branches uh, will collapse. And uh, yeah, it, um, I think it was really an unfortunate uh, thing to do on his part. Well, staying, staying on that thread, um, you know, recently, as uh, since we've done this broadcast, um, just just the day uh, day prior, the Republican Senate um, rejected um, Republican led Senate, I should say, rejected President Trump's declaration of a national emergency. Mm-hmm. The vote was fifty nine forty one, which means it falls short of a veto proof majority. Um, and President Trump has already vowed that he's going to veto this. I guess my question to you, uh, Professor Schneider, does it concern you that the partisanship seems uh, so high that this would seem like an obvious encroachment between the executive branch and the legislative branch, and yet there are not enough votes in the, in the legislative branch to um, override a veto? Yeah, it's uh, very concerning. And if you listen to what the Senate, I mean, the hopeful thing is, I'll tell you two hopeful things. One is that uh, even though it's not a veto proof majority, they probably do not have the votes for an override, although we'll see, you know, as this progresses, maybe they'll win some more over. But uh, it's likely that that's not going to happen. 
But what you heard these Republican senators saying is that the president can't do this, that he's usurping the role of Congress and really acting in an unconstitutional way. So in my view, it's really a rough draft of the Supreme Court argument that we're about to hear. And there's uh, litigation pending uh, to stop this emergency on the grounds that it's unconstitutional uh, uh, by several parties. And the basic argument is the argument that I give in chapter three of the book at, at length. I talk about their uh, the on-point decision, the Youngstown decision, uh, where President Truman uh, declares a national emergency and tries to steal, uh, sorry, tries to, <laughs> you'll see my slip in a second, tries to uh, take over the steel mills that are having strikes at that time. And what he says is, look, we're in the Korean War, and these steel mills are uh, uh, crucial to providing the steel for this uh, warlike emergency. And uh, if there's a strike, we can't allow it. I have to take it over. So he, he in a Trump-like move, you might say, uses the, what he claims are emergency powers. The Congress, uh, sorry, the Supreme Court of the United States considers whether or not he could do that. And what they say is Congress considered giving him that power, Truman, and they decided not to. And they had for, uh, specifically considered in a, an amendment to uh, grant that specific power to the president, and then they defeat the amendment. And that's enough for the court to say this power wasn't granted. In fact, it was denied to the president. So when you look here, this is even clearer than Youngstown because they considered it in the allocation, giving the money. They did not. They considered it. Um, uh, and not only that, they made it clear in this resolution, even though it has to go to the president because of um, the way it's structured, the legislation at this point, uh, it has to go to the president for a signature. Uh, it still sends a message uh, apart from that requirement under Youngstown that this is unconstitutional. And it doesn't matter what the law says. If it's unconstitutional, the president can't do it. Now, now, now in fairness, um, we've had a number of presidents over time play shall we say, loose with the Constitution. I mean, yes. notably, I would refer uh, to John Adams in the Alien and Sedition Acts, certainly yeah. Woodrow Wilson, Sedition Act, Espionage Act, and, and yeah. for as great as Abraham Lincoln was, any dispassionate view, I think, would have to conclude that um, there were some violations of the Constitution, including um, the suspension of habeas corpus. So is this present moment that compels you to write this wonderful text. Is this present moment unique and outside of some of the things I just cited? I think um, it's unique in the sense that there are definitely presidents of the past, and I talk about Adams and the Alien Sedition Acts, as you mentioned, shutting down uh, criticism of him. Really, uh, you know, according to those acts, you could criticize the vice president, Jefferson. Which I absolutely uh, love that part of it. I love that part. <laughs> <laughs> a member of a different party, but you couldn't criticize the president. So that was egregious, certainly. Wilson, uh, in, in also his violations or attack on free speech, but also in his racism and his use of the bully pulpit, for instance, to show birth of a nation and his being quoted and highlighted in it. They all have elements of what you see in Trump. But I guess the case that I would make for why this really is the worst president when it comes to constitutional uh, interpretation is that he combines all those worst elements. And he really, you know, if you go through th all of the things that presidents of the past have done uh, uh, that are problematic, he, he's done all of them and more, and in a sort of sometimes even cruder way. So, so I, he's certainly in the list of the worst. I think he's the worst of the worst. Uh, Lincoln is a terrific question. I guess I'm going to push back on that one. I completely agree with you about the other two, but push back a little bit in that I do think he was a great constitutional president because he off, he acknowledged, first of all, when he was needing to go beyond the, the, the law. 
And the Civil War was a, a true, unlike this wall incident, a true national emergency. I mean, the country was literally falling apart. It was barely possible for the courts to function. And yet in the midst of that, he still, when he was challenged on the legality of the war uh, because of the lack of a declaration, showed up in court. Uh, he, in the uh, case of the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, admits that this is there is no constitutionally delegated power to do it, but it's a moral imperative, it's an emergency imperative. And then he seeks the legal means. He doesn't keep that power. The moment he can, he seeks the legal means through the 13th Amendment uh, in, in seeking the passage of the 13th Amendment uh, to not do uh, what's morally required in an illegal way, but to do it through the legal process. So I do think that Lincoln is a very hard, fascinating case, but that ultimately uh, he is one of our best presidents when it comes to respecting the Constitution. Oh, and I, I would certainly concede the um, Civil War um, uh, qualifies as unique circumstance. I don't think there's any... There's yeah, any... <laughs> never been anything like it, thank God. Yeah. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Brown University professor Corey Brettschneider about his latest book, The Oath of Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. Professor Brettschneider, I'd like to turn our attention to the Bill of Rights. And I, I, I wish to begin by discussing one of the amendments that, at least in my view, is discussed the probably among the least of the ten, which is the Ninth Amendment. And um, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Uh, what was the purpose of this amendment? Um. Uh, I think you missed a not shall not shall not be uh, right shall not be. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. shall not be construed to deny or disparage others right. retained by the people. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So it's very wordy. The framers were precise but wordy. The um, idea here, the crucial idea, is that um, you know it comes from a debate really that happened in the founding where Madison was originally against the Bill of Rights because what he thought was if you put it in there, people are going to think that's it. That the only rights we have are these very specific ones. And really, uh, you know, the rights of religious freedom, for instance, are very, very robust. So his compromise or his sort of genius move that he comes up with with others is we can have a Bill of Rights, but we've got to tell people how to read it, namely not to read it as the only set of rights. And so that's what's beautiful about the Ninth Amendment. It tells us to avoid a very narrow textual interpretation of the Constitution that would just read the rights as those that are enshrined in the details of the text. And it really uh, points us to a reading of the Constitution, which I call value-based, and suggests mm -hmm. that, yes, there are specific provisions. How old does the president have to be? Um, how old do members of the House and the Senate have to be to run? Uh, on those, it's very clear. But on others, it, it, it purposefully uh, enshrines a, a deeper set of values. So the Eighth Amendment, when it talks about no cruel and unusual punishment, uh, that is meant to get us to reflect in the future, uh, future presidents, future congresses, future courts, on uh, what cruelty is. And, and there's a recognition that uh, the rights might be more expansive than people uh, recognize at the time. There's a case now about climate change and uh, rights to constitutional uh, rights for, for uh, children who will now be, you know, one day be adults suffering under the problem of climate change. Uh, that's not something the framers thought about, but they might have offered the resources in the Constitution to make that argument. Would, would that also be how um, the Fourth Amendment is read, um, making the argument that it, 
somewhere embedded in the Fourth Amendment is the right to privacy, though right to privacy is not something that's expressly stated in the Fourth Amendment. Yeah, I mean, what's very interesting about privacy is it's a, a perfect example of what we're talking about, because uh, certainly in the Fourth Amendment, as you say, but also elsewhere in the Constitution, in fact, in the Griswold decision, Griswold, great, v- uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, which is about uh, uh, a law in Connecticut that says that even married couples can't use contraception, even in their own marital bedrooms. And the point of in striking down that law in Griswold versus Connecticut is really to offer this Madisonian lesson. Uh, uh, in how to read the Constitution in the way that we're talking about. So they say the Fourth Amendment, um, the Fifth Amendment, the Due Process Clause, uh, uh, search and seizure, rights of free speech, uh, even the sort of specific uh, requirement that soldiers can't be forced into your house during wartime, those all stand for a more general value, which is the distinction between public and private and the idea that that government can't just uh, uh, arbitrarily force you to uh, uh, comply with laws that, that have no sense. They have to respect your autonomy. They have to respect your privacy. So to me, Griswold is a terrific Madisonian case, a uh, great case in how to uh, use the ideas of the Ninth Amendment and how to think deeply about the values of the Constitution uh, in multiple provisions uh, across the clauses. You write on page 113, quote, Madison had another fear. The Bill of Rights applied only to the federal government, not the states. In theory, then, if there was no protections in the state constitutions, the state could establish a state religion or prosecute an unpopular news, uh, newspaper editor. This issue, uh, I'm guessing, doesn't really get resolved that you write about until the ratification of the 14th Amendment. Is that correct? Uh, the issue about uh, about uh, about Madison's fear, just his fear yeah. about the Bill of Rights only applying to the states. Oh, I mean, I not, see. not yeah. applying to the states, I should say. Yeah, I mean, he thinks from the beginning. Look, if it's a right, it should cover everybody, not just a right against the federal government. That state governments can make mistakes too, and uh, he thinks from the beginning that um, you know Virginia, for instance, was passing bills violative of religious freedom. Uh, that he had been opposed to before the the Constitution was ratified. And uh, so that's important, but that's not the setup that's chosen. They, that, that, that doesn't happen exactly as you say until the Supreme, until the 14th Amendment and really in, in a Supreme Court decision later that says uh, what the 14th Amendment did was use these words, no state shall, and replicates the due process clause. And this did a kind of magic thing of incorporation and magic in the best sense of uh, really making Madison's point finally realize that uh, the ideas of um, the Bill of Rights also now apply to not just state, but also local government. And of course, that's fundamental because uh, the, the framers of those, the post-Civil War amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, knew full well that it was often state governments that were uh, undermining uh, uh, constitutional rights. Um, you, you just touched on it briefly. Talk about the significance of the doctrine of corporation um, that comes out of the 14th Amendment and its impact uh, on the Constitution. Um, this idea of, of incorporation uh, really changes and shifts. It's, you know, there are many things that the 14th Amendment does. It's, it's probably the most important, in my view, part of the Constitution. If I had to pick one amendment, it guarantees uh, equal protection of law against state and local governments, uh, eventually resulting in the Brown decision, of course, striking down uh, segregation in public schools. It guarantees due process of law, not just uh, against the states and local government. 
And then it also says, you know, the First Amendment, for instance, uh, is not just a limit on, on an Alien Sedition Act. It's a limit on a uh, state governor or, or local mayor that want to shut down free speech. We have to care about those amendments, too. And the same with religious freedom, that, um, you know, you can't have, for instance, uh, the state of New York decide to establish uh, one church as an official religion or to do things that resemble that. Uh, and so it, it takes these limits that, uh, until the end of the Civil War, really, had only been limits on the federal government, and pretty anemic ones at that, and extends it out to the states. And that leads in the 20th century to a, a pretty robust jurisprudence of uh, the, the Supreme Court saying that the Constitution protects us against, it doesn't matter what lo level of government. I mean, it's sort of common sense too, right? Like, what does it matter if it's a, uh, somebody who's paid by the federal payroll who's limiting your free speech or the local mayor or clerk? And, uh, you know, often our interactions with government are local police and so, uh, or local, local town councilmen who are threatening to violate our rights. Uh, so that's why what's so important about this this doctrine of incorporation. Mm. Would it be fair, because I, I think I hold the 14th Amendment in, 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 similar, in a similar place that you do, would it, would it be fair um, to, you know, delineate America between uh, pre and post 14th Amendment? Because they're, they're, they're very different places after that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think in many ways... You know, there are embryos, as I say, you know, in the book, that what we can learn from the framers is um, the outline of a government that we need now. And in particular, limits on the presidency, I think, is one of the things that they gave us that we desperately need at this point. But the failing of the country before the, uh, the, the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments certainly uh, is in its uh, embrace of uh, the idea that one person can own another and its failure to end that. It never, in my view, and in Madison's view, he was very careful to say this, uh, protected slavery uh, as, a, as property right in the way that Dred Scott did. I think that Dred Scott was a, not just an evil decision, but a wrong one, saying that uh, there's a constitutional right of one person to own another. Uh, but it, it, it didn't certainly uh, clearly abolish slavery or demand its abolition. And what those amendments do, too, is they not just end the, you know, or you can't use strong enough words, the, the original evil, the original sin of slavery, uh, but they transform the country from one that is a slave-based society to one that is at least premised on the notion that uh, we, we have to take equality seriously, that idea of all uh, men, all people being created equally, uh, has to be realized, uh, certainly regardless of, of race. Now, uh, you know, they passed that those amendments, and of, uh, we have a brief period of reconstruction, of course, but it's really not until the Johnson administration that we have the legislation to seriously start to enforce them. And of course, we're still not there. I mean, this legislation was a start in the 60s, and we, we desperately need to follow it up with action because, uh, uh, in my view, we're, we're uh, you know, a future president, it's their role uh, to keep us from backsliding and uh, not just staying stationary, but, but, but moving forward. And so, in that chapter on the 14th Amendment, I really do hope that future presidents uh, are, are taking that seriously. Well, sticking with the 14th Amendment, one more, uh, just a few more minutes. Would it be fair to say that the 14th Amendment brings the ethos of the Declaration of Independence into the Constitution? 
Uh, not just fair. I mean that you you really we're 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 in heated agreement, as a friend of mine <laughs> says. Uh, the, uh, the you know to me the value based idea of the Constitution gives the clearest indication of why it's not just the text because the text was so flawed in so many ways. I mean think of the idea that people were going to be counted as three fifths of a person when it mm-hmm. came to purposes of the census and taxation. Um, uh, uh, you know, and yet there were these ideals that recognized that this was wrong. And the ideal of equality is nowhere more clearly enshrined than in the Declaration. So, you know, when you litigate now and you go to court, you don't cite the Declaration, you cite the 14th Amendment for that idea. But what you're really doing is citing the amendment that incorporated, that, that brought into to legal reality uh, an idea that was there from the very moment the country was uh, was. Uh, first imagined. Hmm. Uh, I said we, I had an impeachment question for you, so um, uh, here it is. Um, how, well, should, not the how, should the House of Representatives, in your view, proceed with impeachment, assuming that there is the, the evidence there, even if they know full well they do not have the votes in the Senate to convict? Uh, that's the question of the day. I think certainly there's a constitutional obligation. We talked about Mitch McConnell's failed obligation in the Senate. There's an obligation of the House Judiciary Committee to look into what are a series of crimes that are committed by the president and to go beyond that. Because the the uh, question of impeachment, as I say in the book, you know, I defend very strongly the idea, and it's a controversial one, one of the most controversial chapters in the book, that sitting presidents can be indicted. I do think Mr. Mueller that the state attorney general of New York have the ability to uh, to criminally indict, uh, to ask a grand jury for criminal indictment and pursue a criminal case against this president for uh, the same crimes that Michael Cohen is going to jail for. We have that evidence, and I think that's incumbent on them. That's their constitutional duty. But even if they don't do that, or even if they do, there's a separate process, which is the process of impeachment in the House, where you need 50%, and of removal in the Senate, where you need two-thirds. And I think it is a duty, given what we now know after that testimony uh, of the House Judiciary Committee, to, to do a deep dive into both the possible crimes of the president and other things that might not be criminally prosecutable, uh, uh, but that are certainly violations of the oath. And think about, for instance, uh, the threats to uh, shut down free speech, to prosecute political opponents, to torture the families of uh, suspected terrorists, not just the uh, suspected terrorists themselves, the rem- forced removal of people, uh, children from their families. All of those seem to me to be serious degradations of the oath that warrant, at minimum, deep investigation. Now, do they have to call it an impeachment investigation before they have more on the table? The Judiciary's Committee can, the Judiciary Committee uh, can, can look into these things, can have hearings, and it's less important what they call it, that they look into possible high crimes and misdemeanors, as the Constitution calls it, of the president, both actual crime crimes and also cr- uh, crimes in the sense that, high crimes in the sense, it's not a legal category, high crimes, but the idea of degradation of the oath, degradation of the office. Um, are we are we in a sense not splitting hairs in that uh, you, if you, whether you indict a sitting president, you certainly could impeach a sitting president, and then then that private citizen can be indicted. So, I mean, it, it's not a it's not a situation where the president is above the law, or is it a situation where the president in the current formation, the current understanding by the Justice Department, is above the law. 
Yeah, I, I'm very worried about this. I mean, I think, you know, Hamilton's view on this uh, and the Justice Department has two memos written during the Nixon administration and the Clinton administration, really with an eye towards protecting the president of those in those two cases who were facing both of them, possible criminal indictments. Uh, they, they really make this argument that Hamilton also made, which is the proper way to remove a president uh, is uh, impeachment and removal. And only once he's a private citizen can he be in, indicted. Uh, but the problem with that, the reason why I think it would place a, a president above the law is, as we know, a popular president might not be impeached and removed or might be impeached in the House and there might not be the votes in the Senate, even if he's guilty of crimes. And I feel like the idea of equality that, as you put it, that no person is above the law, including a president, uh, uh, and that we are all truly equals, as we were talking about with the Declaration, means that a president can't be allowed to get away with a crime. And the problem with um, uh, a president who's neither impeached nor indicted while in office is that many, maybe most, maybe all, I have to look, of these crimes have a statute of limitations of about five years. So if Trump is reelected, that means he would never be prosecuted for uh, what we know uh, are, are likely crimes that he committed. Uh, and I know in, in your text you're not calling for every American to become a facsimile of uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes. <laughs> no. But uh, would you like, where would you like to see most of us in terms of our constitutional acumen? Um, you know, that's a great question. It's one that that's, you know, I was a, before I was a professor, as a high school teacher, I'm deeply interested in the what I think of actually as a national crisis in civics. Uh, there was a CNN poll recently that talked about uh, the idea that Americans really can't name, you know, a small percentage can name all three branches. There were a significant portion who couldn't name one. People really don't know the constitutional system and the basics. And to me, you know, the education has to go way beyond being able to name the names of the three branches. We have to know what their functions are. We have to understand this idea of a limited presidency, of the constitutional rights that we've been talking about. So really, I wrote this book as, uh, to me, a minimum requirement of citizenship. Everybody has to know this. Uh, everybody certainly should vote for president, should vote for local officials, especially for president of the United States, the most powerful office, not only in the country and in the world. And this is a guide to what you need to know, uh, not just to run, but to vote. Because without understanding these limits and these principles, uh, we risk becoming the kind of citizenry that the framers worried about, one that acted on selfishness, that acted with disregard for each other's rights. Uh, um, and, you know, it's the principles that are really going to rein in uh, abuse of power. And you are seeing a president, he has been weak in some ways and unsuccessful, uh, but he is intent and desirous of, uh, you know, what the what dictators do. Uh, of the, He praises uh, uh, Putin, for instance, uh, and uh, admires aspects of the dictator of North Korea. And that couldn't be more antithetical to our system. And being able to recognize that and call it out by citizens and knowing what kind of candidate to look for and how to, as I say in the book, and as we've been talking about, how to stop a president. I, uh, I talk about the role of governors and local officials in not complying with unconstitutional acts, and I explain how you can recognize that federal law is supreme, but, but recognize, too, what your rights are under the Tenth Amendment, which gives certain rights of local resistance. And all of that, I think, has to be known by the polity, and, and unfortunately, uh, the opposite of that is a polity that just defers to a president and that is authoritarian in nature. 
And I don't know how you prevent against the collapse of the system if, if that's where we're headed. And uh, it, it is uh, up there with the deep, uh, with climate change, uh, crises of our time, the lack of knowledge of how our system works. That was Professor Corey Bretschneider of Brown University. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. According to the latest NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll, 36% of the country feels America is headed in the wrong direction. It's hardly surprising. For more than a decade, the right track, wrong track poll has consistently hovered in the negative quadrant. The question remains who do we blame for it? Some will place the blame on George W. Bush, he the architect of the ill-fated preemptive war in Iraq. Others will lay the blame at Barack Obama's feet. After all, he forced Obamacare down our throats. Maybe it's Donald Trump's fault. That's certainly how some will see it, citing his Make America Great Again as paradoxically symbolic of America at its worst. Then, of course, others will blame Congress, Democrats, and Republicans alike. But there's another corporate that we should consider. They stand ominously in the mirror, staring at us each and every day. But without them, there can be no path that leads to a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron. B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.